on this episode, we're going all the way back to October 2019 to bring to you from our vault, Turn On The Bright Lights by Interpol. There's a lot of spirit heat conversation this episode, which makes it a particularly good listen even now. But also, this kind of relates tangentially somewhat to R.E.M. R.E.M. get a few mentions in the episode, but also Interpol are quite a big band and it's really difficult to call them unsung, I think. Obviously, they're not as big as R.E.M. That would be bananas for me to say that. But this album was quite well regarded at the time and went on to sell quite a lot of records. Again, not as many as R.E.M., but a fair amount. So yeah, I hope you enjoy this little flashback to 2019. This is Turn On The Bright Lights by Interpol. audience <laughs> hello audience hello audience we are here to throw ourselves at your feet and request ongoing financial assistance uh david has now joined me in the ranks of people with giant gaping holes in the crotches of our breeks mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and mark will no doubt not be far behind it's, it's, a, it's an epidemic that's happening one person at a time. Yeah, to underfinanced podcasters. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how you, that's how you can tell us in the street. If you see a ball, yeah, if you catch sight of just a wee little ball, plus the fact that it's all podcasters are white men anyway, yeah. so it's very unlikely you'll see anything other than a ball. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so help us at least mend the hole in our jeans. Yeah, if you give us enough money, we can then start our, our next podcast project, which is the Crotchless Podcast. I'm not asking for a new pair of trousers. I'm just going to patch it up. A darn. You just need yeah, a darn. A darn yeah. So I mean, so the way to do that is uh, is that like eight, eight bucks maybe at the at the Polish tailor. Yeah. yeah. So that would be four new Patreon subscribers. Yeah. Can we have four new Patreon subscribers, please? We had a great rally in that uh, first couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, we would really love to keep up that momentum because it's letting us hit those targets. It's letting us do things like we're we're, we're now arguing almost daily about the design <laughs> of the merchandise, which is. Mm-hmm. Trying to find the studio. Oh, positive development. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so please, if you haven't subscribed, uh, we assure you there is worthwhile stuff coming your way. But you do get good stuff, like you get the normal episode two days early. Yeah, you get the you normal get extra bonus episodes. Bonus episodes. Uh, is that a split seven inch out? Mark? Split seven inch is out. Yes. Yep. Uh, so there's best a, closing tracks. Yep. Best mm-hmm. closing tracks of all time, as suggested by listeners. So there's a lot of kind of additional stuff there. We'd really love it if you would go on Patreon, just set something up. And that way, even if you take a few weeks out and you come back and then binge us for a while, you know that we're at least getting ongoing funding and we can keep doing it while you're on your sabbatical. So, uh, Mark, I think we've got something to thank. Yeah, so we'd like to thank Tim Russell this week uh, for, for giving us some... from. Some of his hard-earned cash. So, uh, what are we going to do for Tim? Does he get an anthem? What does he get? No, he just gets a shout out and his name and likes. So, we're going to add a bit on the website soon, where we'll list all the names of all the lovely people that have given us money. Okay, and those of you that are due anthems, playlists, merchandise, 
Uh, it's all coming. It's all coming. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of made too much work for ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for funding us. Thanks for listening. We're gonna get out your road and let the future selves take over with the rest of the podcast. Great. Thanks. Bye. Man, we're in the future now. Holy shit. Oh, How did that just happen? This is a podcast. Digital podcast times. Unite everything I say, I will say it in a baritone register. <laughs> oh dear. How are you this week, Chris? I have been listening to this all week. <laughs> me too, me too. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's been really exciting. <laughs> what changed? <laughs> Not a fucking lot, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's shown his hand. He's shown his hand too early. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, did you actually go see some bands this week, Chris? I went to see some less than exemplary metal in Edinburgh. <laughs> Glasgow's slightly strange little brother. Yeah, slightly posher. A very posher brother, brother yeah. Uh, but the final band of the evening was excellent. They were called Exterminator. No, they were called Eliminator. And they played a form of heavy metal popularised in Birmingham. <laughs> How about you, Dave? I I supported Mixmaster Mike on Sunday. Oh, so you did? <laughs> Fuck, how the hell is that? So it was fun. Uh, I was tremendously hungover. I had two hours sleep. And uh, I watched Mixmaster Mike soundcheck. And he is not subtle. Hmm. He is very fast at doing the decks. And then everything he does is very loud. It's like, hey, oh, boom. Boom, boom. Hey, hey, woo. Ah, come on, guys. Party, party. And uh, I was just oh, absolutely hanging my tits off. So... <laughs> <laughs> but I had a nice time. I just played an hour and a half of dank hip hop and then f- fucked off, ran away, <laughs> and fell asleep. So, uh, but yeah, I could now put that on my CV. So that was fun. Did you see him? I saw him in the like his set. I like a good ten minutes of it before I left. I <laughs> <laughs> thought, no, this is exactly what my hangover does not need. Ah, oh, that's a shame. But apparently, it was very good. Uh, where was he playing? St. Luke's. Oh, okay. So, hi. It's nice and busy. People out on a Sunday night are ready for a hip hop party. Nice. I was not. People love. <laughs> people. <laughs> people love a hip hop. <laughs> people love to hip hop in a church. Do they have any MCs with them? No. You know. No, no, no. no. Just him. Cool. Just him and his mixer going mental. I think it's a shame Dave doesn't get hungover more often these days because he's good value when he's hungover. You never mm. know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a much rarer occasion now, but yeah. when they do happen, they you save them up. Truly happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, uh, yeah, Mark yeah. and yourself, did you see anything that lit your world on fire? Well, after the last episode, I ran away and watched uh, Tushimori and Def Evan in the garage, and it was pretty good. Tushimori were great. Um, Def Evan were really good. A lot of effects on his voice. Like, mm. So much fucking reverb. It was so high in the mix as well. So it sounded really strange because they were black. Metal band. Yeah, my pal saw them in London like two days later and said that he was obviously just fully coked up as well. So I don't know if he clearly was a very coked up man. His eyes were like fucking 
Wow. <laughs> wow. They were just allegedly like saucers the whole time. Oh, he loved to party apparently, but I'll tell you about that later on. Um, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Hey. That's, for the, that's for the subscribers. You get the adult version of the podcast. Uh, no, but they, I actually really enjoyed them. Um, they played for an hour. I didn't think they were that dull. I, I, I know you didn't think, you think they were dull. I mean, that's, for, for me, that's good by their standards. Uh, yeah. um, pretty intense, but it was cool. It was really busy as well. Even though, and it was in the garage. Yeah, so the world's full bad. of mugs. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Tell you what I did do. I saw Joker this week and I did not think it was possible for a film to live up to that much hype and it really did. It's fucking tremendous. Do you really enjoy it? Oh, it's it's really spectacular and the performance is absolutely astonishing. I've been known to be a touch cynical at times, but goddamn, uh, it was really, really, really good. Um, yeah. I think some people, some of the some of the negative reviews, reading them now, they're a little bit too cool for school, you know. As a fellow contrarian, mm-hmm. as Biffy Clyro's tour manager will tell you, <laughs> yeah, I sometimes like to put people's noses at a joint just because you know. So you are the backlash against the backlash against the backlash. It seems like I've gone meta. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're the frontlash. Meta, meta. Yeah. Yeah, I've, not, I've yet to see it, but I really would like to go see it. So I think I'm going to rectify that this weekend. It's a tremendous piece of work. It really is. I noticed some people like losing their shit because there's a Gary Glitter tune in it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, there's bigger problems because, <laughs> you know, it really encapsulates incel culture in a movie. It's mm. fucking great at that. I think people are upset about that. I don't see why it's already something that exists in this film's like, uh, okay, you see the parallels. So not pointing it out. Yeah, do something it's, about it. It's pointing it, it out, not yeah. celebrating Exactly. It. Mm-hmm. Ignoring it doesn't fucking make it better. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Great. So, oh, well. Kudos to them for fucking pulling that off. That yeah. was... So it's sort of uh, based on a rainy, miserable version of New York City, isn't it? I don't uh, know. The, no, I mean, most of the Batman films are based on a rainy, miserable version of New York City. This isn't yeah, so I'm much... trying to do a segue into the band that we're covering. Right. Uh, Sorry. Uh, a rainy, miserable version of New York City, you say, David. Yes. Funnily enough, it was very in keeping with the subject of this week's podcast. Thanks very much. Oh, well practiced. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was not at all planned either. Like, <laughs> I love how these things just sometimes happen on this show. So organic. <laughs> New York City. Uh, yeah, so this week we are going to discuss the album Turn On The Bright Lights by the band Interpol. Mm-hmm. And I think this is easily one of the best indie albums of this century. Uh, fortunately, we're at the start of the century, still, kind of, <laughs> so we're able to say that. Mm. But uh, notwithstanding, uh, it was part of a renaissance that happened at the start of the 2000s for yeah. indie music, especially in New York City, with bands like Strokes and the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, mm-hmm. these guys. You had a band called Longwave to a slightly lesser extent, and at around about the same time, you had bands like The Killers and stuff who were popularising it. By the way, something that maybe didn't need to happen is the Killers cover of Obstacle Number 1 that you can uh, find on YouTube. It's not awful, but then the later you get in the track, you're like, ah, Brandon, where are you going with that? Mm -hmm. That's just not doing anyone any favours. But yeah, I mean, they were part of this this 
uptick in like really interesting indie music. I think um, Arcade Fire were kind of really pushing through around at the same time, and yet even with that kind of fairly stiff competition, that this album is for me like a, a really high bar. It's very retro, I kind of mm-hmm. unabashedly retro, but with a very distinct sort of post punk, and even at times in the arrangements sort of takes cues from like post-hardcore the guitars are very separated they they spiral in and out of each other so rather than playing just chords they they fragment the chords between each other it's something that Interpol became very well known for and curiously enough I've sort of abandoned now because they've trimmed down to three piece so they don't really have these the, the way the songs are written is is much more simple and I don't know if it's necessarily worked in their favour but we'll get to that my main reservation about choosing this was it's incredibly, incredibly critically revered. Yeah, it's not really unsung at all. Well, wait a minute though. It's incredibly critically revered. It's like 9.5 in Pitchfork and... Number 20 in their best of 2000s Yeah, list. generally across the board. But at the same time, it's an album that did not even close to crack the top 100. Uh, and I think that's worth taking into consideration because the subsequent albums, Antics, which is a very fucking good record, and Our Love to Admire... That got to number two at one point. So commercially, the band's success followed on the back of the strength of this album as they acquired credibility. And indeed, like, I, I was looking through their past shows. We'll talk about this a wee bit as well. But they, they very quickly went from playing King Tuts to selling out the Barrowlands. I mean, in the space of two months. This was a band that just rocketed, critically rocketed out of nowhere. Um, and then the success sort of followed much more steadily. But in recent years... They have strayed quite far from that path. Yeah, I mean, straight off the bat, I mean, you obviously gave it away, but this doesn't seem like a band you'd listen to much, Mark. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not a band I would really listen to at all. So now that you've been forced to, Mark. Whatever. (laughs) It's, uh, aye. This is what you you tune in for, folks. (laughs) That's that's how they make me feel. Like, that's the music, that's what it sounds like to me. It's like, no. All right, cool. You do that. It's just, it's, it's so devoid of anything like passion for me. No passion feels completely cold, sterile, emotionless. It's just not for me at all. I uh, I think it falls. They they're a band that fall into this valley of indie music that I quite often find myself avoiding because I love big pop bangers. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then I love weird, obtuse, progressive metal, and you know, everything in between that. But then there's a valley in there where there's bands doing simple indie rock and they're trying to do hooks, but they don't have the joy or the, like, the outbursts of colour that pop has, but then they don't have, like, the interesting progressive musicality of more interesting stuff. So for me, I've never listened to Interpol because they just don't excite me in that they're not progressive enough in one way, but they're not hooky enough in another way. Um, <clears throat> I can completely understand why they are revered for people that don't like challenging music, mm-hmm. but like to pretend they're into cool music. But uh, yeah, I mean, there will clearly be people fucking tearing their hair out at both of you guys. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. first of all, Interpol for people that like them, certainly within the realms of indie music, they are extremely progressive. The chord changes. I mean, 
indeed it's something they've been criticised for is that their their chord selection is sometimes too unorthodox the phrase that comes up a lot is sour they use a lot of jazz chords diminished chords minor to minor progressions which yeah. is a very prog thing to do and the way that they break up the lines the division this like I said the post-hardcore post-punk division of notes rather than playing bar chords or solid chords one guy playing two or three parts maybe higher up the register the other playing two or three parts lower down you know the the syncopation of those parts the, their approach to the arrangements musically is extremely inventive and their bass player Carlos Dengler certainly the bass player up to the fourth album was a phenomenon I mean, a guy who never played bass, who grew up listening to like Def Leppard and Dawkin and all these and Maiden bands like this, who just completely seamlessly transitioned. He didn't even—he never owned a bass. This guy was an Interpol who was touring like festivals and arenas, and his whole life he never owned a bass. He said when the band got enough money, they bought a bass. He'd only ever borrowed one, and since he left the band, he's never played one again. Yet the guy's still considered to be one of the great contemporary, certainly pop and rock bassists. His stuff is astonishingly inventive for an in, an indie band, uh, and certainly the the earlier the album, the louder the bass was in the mix, uh, which is something they're faulted for. Certainly mixing that down as they went on, but when you can really hear Carlos, it's often him that's making the songs. It's mm-hmm. often him driving some of the most unusual parts, some of the kind of bridging segues, some of the little dropouts. They're all about him. And this is a guy who just picked this thing up. He's a, he's a really fascinating guy, actually. I'll touch on that as well. But um, And as regards hooks, I, I just I simply... I, I, can't, I can't see where that's coming from at all. Especially when I say antics and... Do you know and, what? I'm talking about the band overall. And also, like, I'm, I haven't got to... I'll talk about this album, this particular album, a bit later. But I think overall the band put me off because they aren't anything in particular that I want and just as a genre that's a problem for me like indie rock just I mean the stalwarts of the genre that you know like the classic albums I just something in me I they just feel to pick me up on and like I don't I agree with you in that like I'm not somebody that was I I was surprised that I got into Interpol because certainly at the time I was listening to a lot of like Constellation stuff I was listening to a lot of really heavy stuff I was really into Dillinger Escape Plan and then this band came out that I just couldn't shake the fact that fuck I love these songs and yet they're being delivered in a really innovative way that is acceptable to my kind of non-mainstream sensibilities Mm -hmm. and that's why I was so impressed with Interpol at the time I was like it's nice to have something I can listen to that's a bit romantic and a bit tuneful and a bit sort of heart a bit a bit kind of melancholy yet doesn't you know doesn't have that kind of cloy sickly kind of effect of things like I don't know, any number, like Death Cab for Cutie, for example, which is brilliant songs delivered so blandly and like most of the emo stuff that, that, I mean, certainly stuff like AFI, which is just so dull the way it's it's written and delivered. Like some of the melodies are nice, but there's no inspiration at all about the way that the songs are arranged. And I think this was a band that took some of the elements of post-punk and a lot of the elements of goth that, that bands like AFI had incorporated but just did something just way more adventurous with it. And there was no guarantee it was going to work. This wasn't a band that was like handpicked to work. They had a bassist who wasn't a bassist. They had a guitarist singer who'd started out in hip hop. They had just no real designs Mm -hmm. on the big time. Yet what they were doing got them there, which is kind of cool. 
Um, it's really interesting now we can hear completely fucking different things, like absolutely, but it comes back to the thing I think we've discussed before, particularly you've picked up on it, is when you're talking about records that maybe were quite influential at the time, but there's been a slew of absolute fucking garbage since this band came out that sounds a lot like it, that I just can't put away. Yeah, but even at the same away. time, this mm. band ripped off a lot of stuff very blatantly. Which is stuff I mean, that I don't like anyway. Yeah, me, I mean, so. they, they, they obviously loved Joy Division. There is Clearly. no way to get away from that at <laughs> all. Fucking hate Joy Division But they so much. never, ever, ever pretended mm. they didn't. But what they did do was take Joy Division yeah. in a much, a much more rock direction and a much more kind of post-punk direction. And, and it was mm. just something a bit more... But unusual. what Mark's <clears throat> saying, I think we'll go back to like the influences in a minute, but... What Mark says, like, there's a couple of tracks and then on this, particularly because it's like their earlier stuff, that is then, I feel, kind of been tarnished by the landfill indie that came over the next five, ten years. And I recognise that, like, there's a couple of songs on this th- record that I'm like, oh, do you know what? It's basically just an update of sort of Smiths, but more miserable, and I can kind of oh, get behind definitely. that. But what has then happened is then bands like fucking... Kaiser Chiefs and all these bands have then come along and then regurgitated it and I've heard it so much over the last 15 years that I just can't deal with it and then when you hear it on this record you're like I understand that they didn't make this shit but it's been made shit you're jaded since and I'm truly jaded by that so the thing a really key thing about Interpol is the fact that unlike the bands that were picking up on what they were doing I think because they're clearly an inspiration I mean for example Bands like, like Deftones, like mm. Chino Moreno thinks this album is an absolute masterpiece. It was a band that these people who'd grown up on bands like the Smiths were really, really keen on because they were clearly taking those inspirations and doing something very heartfelt about it. Even the Killers, when they do that cover, there's a little kind of like spoken word bit before it where he's talking about, yeah, there was all these good bands coming out, but few bands had this sheer enigmatic class of this, this New York quartet that nobody really knew what the fuck they were all about. Um, and I think a big part of Interpol's mystique was its style, its approach, its its aesthetic, the red and the black, the shades, the noirish thing. The sort I mean, they came out, they were cool compared to what had gone before. And yeah. that's entirely, I think that's maybe what got them much bigger than they, not deserved, but like this whole post-punk revival and the garage rock revival that came out, you know, post-2001, 2002, that was basically like a war against the new metal and the hip-hop and the R&B that had been dominating the charts for the last five years and people were like oh just some lads with guitars to and like thank fuck they don't have you know red baseball caps on and stuff like that so yeah they're just mm-hmm. so much cool you know like these guys and then the strokes and then Franz Ferdinand they're all coming out at different bits but like people were just really glad that they didn't have some sort of gimmick. Their gimmick was the fact they were, they were stripped back and they were cool. And I think that that made them, gave them extra credibility. Well, I think Interpol did have a gimmick. I think they clearly, when they landed, they were yeah, like... Yeah, but they weren't wearing boiler suits. No, <laughs> no, but they were wearing suits and shades indoors and they very, very rigidly stuck to that kind of wardrobe and that kind of like noirish, gothy aesthetic. Carlos Dengler, Carlos D., as he was known especially, went for almost a sort of like misfitsy kind of like hairdo at times with a very heavily gelled long fringe and the really intense sort of red and black contrast in his outfits. 
Um, I think that was a, a masterstroke in their part. It also really fitted with the whole New York uh, chic thing. They were coming mm-hmm. from New York. There was nods to bands like, I mean, they're, they're basically like a mixture of craft work and television. That's that's what their look is. Uh, it's maybe taken on board things like the Small Faces from the 60s, who were like one of the kind of first moddy style bands mm-hmm. as well. But I think Interpol, whether or not they meant it, that was really key to them getting people's attention but I don't think for a second they would have held that attention if their music wasn't so interesting and in particular if this album hadn't been such a, a journey because uh, it's easy to have one or two good songs the guys are, f- f- Maximo Park's might be a good example Maximo Park had mm. one or two actually quite good songs I'll be fucked if I'm going to listen to a full Maximum Park album and I've tried and it's just not happening because there's no real sense of investment or through narrative to that band Mm -hmm. whereas when you listen to this this album takes massive chances by the third track they're drifting away already into weird dreamy shoegazy stuff it's it's a it, it was a big gamble this band and it felt very organic it didn't feel like they had any real expectation it was going to take off the way it did and yeah it did um so yeah, I mean, I'll backtrack very slightly, right? So the band themselves are from New York. They were actually started, I think most people associate Paul Banks, the frontman, with Interpol. And it was actually Daniel Kessler, the sort of kind of quiet-spoken guitarist rhythm. I don't know how you would divide the guitar duties in Interpol because they do bits and bobs at each, but Daniel Kessler, who's the guitarist now, uh, had started the band originally with a guy called, I think it's Greg Drudy. Yeah, Greg Drudy. Uh, and they had approached Carlos at New York University where they were studying philosophy, which is kind of, you know, fitting with a sort of pretentious, art school high-end mm-hmm. vibe of the band. And they they, they, apo- they, they, they openly said they approached Carlos because he's style. They were like, there was this guy walking about looking like really cool and gothy and alternative. And they said, do you want to play in a band? He was like, he was a guitarist. He's a total shredder, Carlos De- uh, Dengler. And he was like, well, I'll, do we want you to play the bass? He was like, I'll give it a shot. And he just took to it. And it was sometime later that Paul Banks got involved. Um, I believe Daniel had actually read, originally met Paul Banks on some kind of exchange to Paris and Paul had like refused because he was so into hip-hop at the time but then subsequently came back to New York. I believe he sat in on a practice. Long story short, he joined and supposedly because of the the crappy PA they had in their practice room, that's where he's really strong baritone approach developed to his vocals because he was like, just couldn't get the amp couldn't get the PA loud enough and so he was just a, a lot of time forcing it this really strong projected yeah. baritone um, but yeah so they were like a post-punk indie gothy kind of new wave band as I said for me aesthetically huge huge swathes of craft work big bits of television especially in the way the guitars kind of fragment and break up and create the illusion of bigger chords without them actually having to spell it out for you Drudy left, they did a couple of EPs. Their first ever release, actually, was on Chemical Underground, the Scottish label. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, so they were still very, very uh, early in their career at the time. Right. 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 
think the EP is called Fucked ID Number Three. So F U K D I D hashtag three came out in December of two thousand. Uh, it was only a thousand copies. Uh, it had PDA on it, which went on to be a really big song for them. It was on their first four releases. Uh, a track called Precipitate, Roland, which is also on this album, and Five, which I believe had like a, a working title of Get the Girls, and the first ever show outside of the USA was at King Tut's. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in fact, it was only their second ever show outside of New York. They did a whole load of shows inside New York. They played once in Austin, then they went to Glasgow. And they played King Tut's three times in the next two years. And then suddenly they were playing the Barrowlands. And it was like, wow, this band is really taking off here. I remember when they were here, I remember them being talked about. And then, like, two years later, I'm like, fuck, man, I really wish I'd paid attention to that. Uh, but yeah, they, a couple of tracks from that came back out in a thing called the Precipitate EP. They released themselves in the States, given that it was such a small release over here. Uh, there was a track in that called Song 7 and a track called A Time To Be So Small, which appeared on Antics as well. So at some point in those two EPs, I can't remember exactly when, uh, but Drudy left and they'd played the demos to a guy called Sam Fogarino. Uh, I think Sam Fogarino had heard them initially, wasn't too taken, but then really liked where they were going with the music and joined. Sam Fogarino's a tremendous pop drummer he's a very good drummer his drum lines are so interesting Mm -hmm. he does a lot of snare stuff which is sometimes a bit incongruous but works fucking brilliantly Um, but yeah they did those EPs then they finally did an Interpol EP which came out with Matador and that was the start of the relationship with Matador which is the label through which most of the materials emerged but yeah and then Turn On The Bright Lights came out They played King Tut's the day this was released. The, the band's kind of history with Glasgow and Scotland, certainly via Chemical, was very intertwined. And it's mm. kind of interesting that because I think at first I assumed there was some kind of Scottish connection. Um, I think Paul and Daniel are actually both English, but they relocated to America really, really early. Um, and then they released a thing called the Black EP. two versions of that kicking about one of them is um, a kind of I think six tracks kind of abbreviated version of this uh, live session they did in French radio uh, and then they also did a version which is or there's at least an unofficial version which is like the full set from the French radio show um, and it's decent it's got a couple of tracks on it that are, that are sort of like less uh, well known in 2004 they followed up Turn On The Bright Lights with Antics but hey, who's on trial Antics is a fucking great album. I actually, I think when I went back to see this, I didn't realise there was such a consensus about Turn On The Bright Lights as being their best album. Because mm-hmm. certainly anecdotally, amongst my friends that are fans of the band, I think Antics is held in at least the same high regard. It certainly sold more. and it's A lot maybe, more. It's got yeah. bigger songs on it. Bigger, way bigger singles in it. Yeah, it was like number 15 in the US. It was 21 over here. Like I, I remember when I used to DJ 
the indie club at uni evil was the track yeah. from interpol that i had there's a my- there's a bunch that there's a evil but there's also slow hands mm-hmm. there's a track Kamir. it's way too late to be this locked inside ourselves the trouble is like, there's just some really, really strong singles in that. They're all top 40 hits. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place, and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast need to hire you need indeed yeah in the UK. Um, and it was I think it was Drowned in Sound's best album of the year uh, it was in a lot of polls in 2004 actually it's a lot cheerier and a lot poppier which I think explains that accessibility made it easier to DJ like you said um, although as I mentioned earlier you could already hear the bass getting slightly lowered in the mix and I think for people that were so enamoured with Carlos D's work that was a little bit of a concern early on. Um, you see that in some of the reviews. They're like, it's great, but we'd love to have heard more of Carlos as we did previously. Um, there's tra- I mean, even the opening track in that album, Next Exit, echoes that sort of thing of Untitled from this one. Which is this very dreamy, trippy, gradual, patient introduction. And I think that shows a maturity and a contributed to their sense of cool. This wasn't a band that started with a banger. This was a band that started on their own terms both times. Um, and there's also some great album tracks in that. Not Even Jail, Public Pervert. And length of love it has a fucking tremendous baseline in it. Um, so I mean, that's a that is a really really strong album. Um, I would have if I'd th- thought for a minute that it was not quite as well reviewed as I assumed it was, then I may have considered that instead of this. But it's very hard to fit anything in between them, even though they're quite different. Um, that was followed by our love to admire, which is was released in Capital. They were on Capital just for one. Our love to admire. By this point, they were making like really big waves. This went to number one in Mexico. And I think, Mark, you mentioned the Smiths. Um, Interpol have a massive following in Mexico. Uh, they actually released their most recent album 
using a kind of short notice surprise gig in Mexico City. And it kind of reflects that weird Latin love of the Smiths. I don't know if you know about this, but like yeah. in Los Angeles, for example, like there's so many kids are absolutely obsessed with it. Do you know what's interesting is I was just seeing on Instagram my pal Johnny, who plays bass in the Twilight Sad, is currently they're over in Mexico City right now mm-hmm. supporting the cure in a huge fucking stadium. Yeah. Um and like a lot of people like the Twilight Sad in Mexico. A lot of people love the cure in Mexico. Uh, a lot of people love this sort of music in Mexico. Yeah, they love that gothy post-punk stuff. Yeah. They absolutely fucking love it. That kind of melancholy, very almost melodramatic uh, pop, indie pop. You know, the the, mm. the melodrama seems to really go over well. And I think that's something the Smiths and Morrissey were well known for. Yeah. Um, and it's something that there's definitely huge, huge, huge chunks of it mixed in with Interpol. Our Love to Admire had a little bit more keys in it, but again, the bass was a wee bit lower. Um, it's a it's a really, really, really good selection of songs on it. Uh, Pioneer to the Falls is a terrific opener. No I and Threesome and the Heinrich Maneuver uh, are brilliant singles, like really catchy singles. Uh, and then some of the album tracks like The Scale, Mammoth, Who Do You Think You... I think it's Who Do You Think or Who Do You Think You Are, whatever. Um, they're really strong. And The Lighthouse, the final track in it, is just a really beautiful closer. thing is there's a couple of weaker tunes in it there's a, a song that's quite well known by them called rest my chemistry which uh, i never understood why it was so popular it seems a bit banal to me and a track called all fired up albeit that track ends fucking brilliantly but the actual the, the verse chorus it is a little bit insufferable but they were still on track at this point the the albums were consistently changing maybe com- becoming slightly poppier but i don't think anybody was disappointed other than the occasional gripe about Carlos getting lower in the mix. And I don't know what happened in 2010, but they brought out a self-titled album called Interpol, and something was drastically different in the band. Now, Carlos actually came uh, left the band before this album was released. Well, He said that everything started to get so routine. The touring, the expectations, the obligation to do this, the obligation to do that. He said that it just became very stifling. I don't really know what they were doing with this record. It's um, it's ambitious. It's very atmospheric. It uses a lot of repetition, but sometimes all the worst things come out. Like the ambition isn't realised. The repetition gets quite dull. Uh, the atmospherics kind of override the the songs, or at least the songs are neglected for the sake of the atmospherics. Um, I, it's really really disappointing. To be honest, the, the album features Azealia Banks as well, which is just a sign for me, a bad sign that this is a band that's starting to believe its own hype a wee bit, getting mm-hmm. people like that in. That, that just isn't something that seems in keeping with the band of the first album, Turn On The Bright Lights. Um, it, the reviews on this album are very lukewarm, uh, albeit uh, 
inexplicably when you look at Metacritic it still gets a, a bizarrely high rating I think it's mostly seen as a bit of a cliff amongst people that are really into them albeit I'm sure super fans find a way to love it there's a track on it called Lights that I think is one of the best tracks But it's, I mean, it's very much meagre pickings, uh, aside from that. Um, yeah, and it, it was pretty gutting. It was actually pretty gutting. And weirdly left me a little bit scunnered with them. And because they leave such long spells of time between their albums, by the time Alpine Tour, the, the fifth album, came out, I wasn't really paying much attention to them, I'll be honest. I was a little bit put off by the sort of pedestrian nature of them by that point. This was seen by a lot of folk as, as, as a bit of a return to form. El Pintor, by the way, is an anagram of Interpol, and it also means the painter. So that works out nicely for them. Um, it's the first album they did without Carlos. They'd actually briefly had uh, Dave Pajo, who was in Slint, on bass for them. Um, but then uh, Paul Banks just moved over to bass permanently. Uh, there's guest appearances in this one again. I think one of the guys from Bon Iver's on it. And again, that just, it just doesn't feel like Interpol to me, certainly not the Interpol of the first couple of records. Uh, there's five singles on it, uh, and I really don't think there's five particularly good songs on it. Um, it still gets a better rating on Metacritic than Our Love to Admire, which is nonsense. There's a, <laughs> weirdly enough, The Skinny is an arts paper based in Scotland, and I noticed that one of the standout quotes that I could find from reading reviews of this album was a guy called uh, Gary Kale. So Gary, if you listen to this, I'm going to take issue with you, mate. Uh, he called this arguably their strongest since their debut. What the mm. fuck are you smoking, Gary? Yeah, that's definitely not true. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's fucking nonsense. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The, the but, be- I mean, sometimes an album comes along by a band that you've been hoping are good. So you just pretend it's good. And yeah. Like, oh, do you know? Ah, no, I'm just going like, to give it a pass. <laughs> it's fucking wishful thinking yeah. in the extreme. Uh, I think also tellingly, the bass is back up in the mix, but now Paul's playing it. And it's like, well, yeah. I wonder not the same. if Paul had a lot to say at some of the, the mixes. But yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a, the first track on it, actually, All the Rage Back Home. Maybe that's all Gary listened to. Because it is a really strong track. It's really direct. It's much more post-punky and driving. Uh, it really comes across. The second track and the third track, My Desire and Anywhere, are fine. But then after that, it's just a mulch of like totally average stuff. Stuff that on any of the earlier records would have been a bit of a skipper. And as much as I want to try and find positives in it, there just isn't a lot. I mean, there's a track on it called Ancient Ways that is fucking bad. It's just a mess Sonically Structurally It's just a fucking Bad song The album's kind of mundane It's a bit uninspired And it kind of sounds As you were saying Dave About the slew of bands That came after them It sounds like an average band Trying to rip off Interpol Which to be honest Maybe it actually is By this point I'm not really sure Um, You're talking about The editors yeah (laughs) <laughs> well see they're another perfect example of a band that saw this saw the gothy aesthetic saw the baritone well funnily enough the editors were formed in 2002 
And I'm just wondering if they literally heard that album and went, let's Let's just be be exactly that band. Well, (laughs) the funny thing as well, I've heard editors' demos prior to their album sessions Mm -hmm. and they don't sound, they sound a bit more like the choral. You know, so there's a lot of production involved in that band as well. Um, Yeah, their most recent album, Marauder, 2018. I I can't shake the feeling that it's maybe a band circling the drain at this point. The only thing is, the first track in this, If You Really Love Nothing, really deserves to be mentioned because it's absolutely fucking amazing for the verse. And then the chorus arrives and it interrupts the verse, then the chorus fucks off again, and then it's amazing again. like if you were like in a bedroom like making out with somebody and then fire alarm your mate no your mate just keeps coming and going oh i'm sorry i've left my <laughs> left my tobacco sorry sorry and he's not a bad guy but you're like fuck off <laughs> <laughs> and then two minutes later he fucking comes in again he's like guys i'm really sorry but i've uh, i've got to get my, my, my phone charger and you're like fuck it it just the chorus keeps arriving and derailing what's actually a fucking brilliant song mm. and it's the first time they've reached that level of brilliance in a decade easily and yet they make this really bad decision with, with the songwriting by keeping it in and then the end of the track is just over long and not in a good way because some of the tracks that interpol do are quite long and quite indulgent at the end mm-hmm. like pda but it's usually in a, a very considered fashion this just rumbles on and it's such a shame because the verses in this show that they're still a band with great potential moments um the second track the rover is not bad it's a bit more old school but it kind of deteriorates again it's that kind of sour chord thing and there's a lot of chat that paul banks over the years has blown his voice now i mean his voice is singing in baritone is actually quite taxing on your voice totally is Uh, and paul banks is a chain smoker i mean it's it's literally part of almost every video they do is paul banks smoking or smoke blown across the camera it's a it's a big part of their aesthetic and uh, uh, a lot of the kind of vloggers talk about it even like super fans are like you know i hate to say this but i think paul's done it i think his voice is just gone and they're now trying to compensate by way way overusing processing on the vocals using a lot of reverb and a lot of delay so it becomes really washy mm. it can become really hard to distinguish between the vocals and the guitars and the keys it can get dead messy um there's a track called stay in touch in this which i think is just fucking plain awful and the track number the track number seven mountain child sounds like interpol are trying to do a killer song mm-hmm. which is just well, i guess ironic but fucking absolutely not uh, not a good turn of events and the album ends up being like a real slog I, as I say about circling the drain I don't want to think that because there's always the potential that a band can turn it around but it, it, the, the 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 returns are getting more and more meagre mm-hmm. as it goes on and I think they've never been the, there's no point denying it they've never been the same since Carlos left there's absolutely no way to get away from that yeah. um, the guy is fucking incredibly gifted musician um, and Man, they've they've really really struggled. I think to to maintain the standards without them. Yeah, and so that just kind of leaves turn on the bright lights. The album I chose. So considering all of that, and considering how good I think albums two and three are, it wasn't like a dead easy choice. Mm-hmm. But our love to admire sold big, certainly by indie rock standards. And antics with the big singles was much more high profile. Yeah. Uh, and did chart a lot higher generally. As I said, Turn on the Bright Lights didn't break the top 100. And that is 
that's not great. We've we've covered a lot of albums that are we would maybe say are less critically revered that have been far far higher chart wise albums that have got to like the forties and stuff. So I, I was surprised actually. I thought it would it would have got slightly higher than that because I do remember a lot of people talking about it. But it, it seems to have been a slow burner. It seems to be one that people yeah it was just, an, well it was a debut album as well. You know a first record is the thing that builds the hype yeah but I mean the like the Killers was it what's the first one Hot Fuss Hot Fuss yeah I mean that was fucking massive yeah but yeah. it had about 14 singles on it yeah that's like, true yeah so Turn On The Bright Lights I, I just for my money I don't know of many better first albums by a band From in, in my opinion I think mm-hmm. you'd, I think certainly in indie rock especially I mean the, the ones of the time the Arcade Fire and the Strokes are good contenders the Yeah Yeah Yeahs all had great first albums for me this is easily up there with any of those uh, it's quite an unfussy album it's quite unplanned it's a bit it's inconsistent but inconsistent in in a way that shows that there was no big sort of record label involvement in its arrangement it's quite indulgent some of the, some of the tunes have four minutes of fucking instrumentation at the end that they would never have got away with on their later albums when there was so much more expectation for radio play. But this album is unrefined in a way that I think really complements the the sensibilities of the guys making it. Um, as I said, the aesthetics are brilliant. They really, like, the cover that they just looked like they just didn't give a fuck about the cover. The weird red curtain on a black background at an odd angle and that kind of colour scheme is just echoed all the way through their career. Yeah, it just, it feels like a whole work. It feels like a band that's been gestating. Because, I mean, it was like five years at this point. More than five years, actually, at this point. That this band had been slowly piecing together this arsenal of stuff. And as I said, the song PDA had been on all their releases, including the demos. So they'd workshopped this this music for quite some time. And I think it really shows, in a way that some of the later stuff clearly shows that it, it hasn't been... Mm-hmm. Untitled, the the opening tune again, super nonchalant title, so vague, so in keeping with this kind of like casual smoking, fucking New York cool hipster vibe of the band. such a confident way to start your de- your debut album really sort of like ketamine shoegaze kind of dreamy sort of fugue state kind of music i fucking love it yeah um, like i i do like this track i like it is understated um and i can see the twilight side got a lot from this band definitely um but do you know funnily enough i think like what this band are to the twilight side are also what like the national are to frighten rabbit i.e they were very influential but i think the twilight side and frightened rab and frightened rabbit then came along and improved it by adding a whole lot of personality um which i think lacks here certainly in the national and i mean i say i 100 percent agree with the national i think again people will be fucking tearing their hair out saying that and they're one of personality I think like the, the the strength of the aesthetic and the vibe of the band is so strong. I mean, you could draw Interpol for a challenge and people would guess what it was, but could you draw the National and have people guess, oh, that's the National you're drawn? Could you? You certainly couldn't draw the Twilight Sad. Yeah, but being it, but, cool isn't personality. Being cool is a like a a much more visual thing, a much more uh, shallow thing. Like a personality is like a deep down heart. <laughs> I'd, I mean, maybe. Maybe you're 
I don't know if there's a lot of objectivity in that, man, because we know the Twilight Sad. Of I course love, not, I yeah. love the Twilight Sad, but I don't think objectively it's a band with a strong personality. It's a, it's artwork stronger. It's, no, I, th- I think James's delivery is way more personal and emotional and driven than anything Interpol have ever done. Mm, I don't agree with that. Um, but I guess we just have to disagree on that. I think you're both wrong, so... <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, obstacle number one. Uh, this is the track that first got me into Interpol. Uh, I just caught the video by accident. I think it was maybe um, 100 minutes, something like that, that I was watching. And the video is just so fucking perfectly judged, again, for the aesthetic of the band. I think it looks like a, like an airport departures lounge or something, but it's deserted. And it's the band kind of badly lit, wearing shades, smoking, playing these songs, just looking fucking cool as shit. Uh, like, I mean, there is a quite sort of superficial appeal to the sort of shirts and ties, suit jackets, that kind of thing. But fuck, man, it really worked. And the instantaneous nature of the song follows so well from Untitled as well because you, you're not really sure where this album is going it's a very slow start but this comes in very 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 directly with that kind of like sporadic staccato guitar line and the drums come in and after that that really sets it off it immediately shows that this is a band that's going to be defined by this and super inventiveness with their guitar interplay as well because straight away you've got this kind of stereo mirroring of the two guitar lines one kind of call and response to the two different guitar parts which kind of start to spiral around each other as the as the chords get more complicated I wish I was as high as you are right now, man, because this is not at all. Right. Not even at <laughs> I mean, all. I can hear. The, the actual, not even remotely what I can hear. From a, from a songwriting perspective, the structure of this song is very unusual. If you compare it to your kind of usual verse, chorus, verse, or even like your kind of Idlewild verse, pre-chorus, chorus, it's it's got way more bits. If you were to sit and learn this, you'd be like, oh, fuck, I forgot this bit, I forgot this bit. There is a, this is a song that has been built up incrementally by a band rehearsing it for a long fucking time because it does not follow like a simple template the baritone in it is very strong and I think that appealed to people right out the gate and I think one of the things about Interpol when you combine the aesthetic the kind of romance the kind of overwrought romance of it that Smithsy melodrama uh, as well as the kind of cool looks and the, the, the anti-macho approach it, also some of the lyrics I mean we never mentioned in Untitled lines like I'll surprise you sometime I'll come around when you're down have this kind of like sort of post-generation X kind of slacker it's, it's a very intangible thing but a romanticism a kind of sloppy romanticism I also think the snare drum breakdown at the end of the song is a very unusual decision but a very very cool decision before it goes into that outro I like, I like the drums on that song a lot and they do do kind of interesting things with the guitars but to me it just sounds like struggling to get drunk in the QMU uh, during the worst Indian night in the world um, but there's, there's still stuff the thing is like I didn't say anything about the first song either, but there's a lot of shit I like about the song like the reverb and guitars are lovely right really really nice the bass tone is consistently awesome throughout this entire record yeah and it's not a, this is not a big budget recording yeah 
I like how I often like how Lowe's voice is in the mix as well. Not because I don't like his voice, but I hate his voice. But that's not why I like it. I like it because it's a really gives it a really nice aesthetic appeal. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of there's a lot of interesting touches that I enjoy about the music. Like from a I guess a critical point of view, like great decision production wise. Yeah, you well, know, remember kind of I was stuff. saying about the PA being really quiet in the practice room. The, the the album reflects that the album mm. like the the voice is sunk into the music because the album was trying to capture what they heard in their music and they'd they'd become given that they came from nowhere and they were in some cases a band of not actually a band of guys that were on instruments that did not come naturally to them mm-hmm. they were like let's just replicate what we're making in that practice room so production decisions like that are in keeping with it, the authenticity of the music they were making NYC is a good example of that because that's another one where everything's really dreamy and really sunk into the mix. It's a really unexpected downbeat turn so early in an album like you've you've started quiet but then you've got it going and I, could, I think people could sort of be like oh they've done a fake out right okay now it's going to get going but then they kind of slink it back down again decisions like that also still appeal to that sense of like a band that are cool enough to, and confident enough even at this really early stage in their career to take chances like that it is a chance when you're sequencing an album especially one that's got kind of bangers later on well bangers and very commas but faster tracks later on to do this so early the drumline in this i think is fucking genius because it's such a simple song and it could have been really boring but um he's just he's offset the snare in such a clever way yeah. all the way through the lines I don't think you necessarily notice it until you actually specifically listen to my, my that's such a fucking clever drumline just to make this unconventional because it could have been a very dreary conventional tune with that one thing changed just a 4-4 four, four, would have made this totally unremarkable I think it makes um, the empty space of the song a bit more dynamic which I quite like it does it does it gives it an angle it gives it okay, it makes it more angular in a weird kind of fairly gentle way um, dreadful lyrics though I, see I actually disagree because I think I'm sick of spending these lonely nights training myself not to care the subways are porn on the pavements of the RMS and yeah. it's supposed to support me for a long time somehow I'm not impressed okay cool Sub- nice one Paul subway is a porno is a lyric that just is so fucking Interpol as well though it's that it's that thing where you do something that's deliberately slightly ridiculous and they've done this on albums all the way through where they've, they've thrown in phrases that are there to sort of contribute to that aesthetic of kind of kind of dumb but cool it's like a it, almost like a Ramonesy reference these kind of like slightly goofy lyrical turns but in a cool fucking New York sort of way this is the it, it's it's a very hard thing to really sum up without fucking spending another hour trying to analyse you know the, the linguistics of it. But there is a deliberacy in that that I think is overlooked. It is a daft lyric, but it's a daft lyric that was left in there on purpose and weirdly ended up being a hook, which is sort of a masterstroke, you know. Uh, I think the in this song as well, again on on the drum side of things, the really sparse but clever use of the bell. On, mm. on the ride yeah. is, is a very nice touch and the the second vocal that comes in which I think is Daniel is just this sort of like nursery rhyme echo in the background uh, that just just builds it up without them 
Without them lashing on loads of layers of guitar and distortion, it builds it up subtly but really noticeably. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply indeed.com slash podcast need to hire you need indeed and then it brings on to pda and pda for anyone that's in the interpol is a fucking massive tune It's a massive, massive tune. It's also a game changer in terms of arrangement. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of people cite the Pixies as being that kind of like loud, quiet, loud, quiet, which obviously Nirvana then took. But PDA and the way that they structured this tune, I think it's underestimated how many bands this has influenced. And obviously Interpol didn't invent this, but they certainly popularised it for a new generation of indie songwriters. Having this like verse, chorus, verse, chorus song, which is good in its own right. It's a really great song. It's very direct. It's very minor. It's kind of driving. It's a nice car song. And the bass line in it is that dead serpentine sort of approach to bass playing up and down the neck that Carlos has really complements the tune. But where it comes into its, its own is the outro. The fucking outro in this song is majestic. It's, like about, it's about a minute 50, nearly two minutes of outro, which just very, very, it drops out, gradually builds up, and then there's just this beautiful moment where the bass line drops into the low register for two notes, and then the drums crash in behind it. And it takes you on this beautiful, just sort of rolling, melodic, intertwining guitar outro with a keyboard over the top of it. And then the vocals become quite sort of ghostly and just kind of like gently howled with loads of reverb. It's fucking just such a fucking great bit of music in the outro to PDA. And I'm not surprised it was on all their early releases. And it is just, it is just iconic in terms of the band's reputation. I don't think they would have been the band they are without that song and without that song ending the way it ends. It's fucking massive. Um, now you were talking about Smith's Say Hello to the Angels is a Smith song. Is just yeah, and it annoyed me as a result of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm this not- is the one. This is one of the ones that I was talking about, where it just totally reminds me of 
the shit that came after it and it reminds me of you know like future heads and maximo park and yeah. editors and all that jangly enemy pish that we had to put up with yeah. for a decade and it's not a style of song <sighs> that they did much of afterwards albeit I, I do rate this song because they break it down in a way that none of those bands would have. Yeah, the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, that kind of spanky Smiths thing and the kind of Morrissey-esque approach to the vocals is, yeah, that's that's been done and it's been done since and it is a little bit great, and especially in the years since. But the way they disassemble this song, the way the drums break down, the way the, guitar, the guitars break down and they start to syncopate and they start to call and response... It's almost like quite a post-hardcore kind of job oxy style. It's it's not in any way emo or hardcore, but the no, but the the ingredients are yeah. The separation Mm. of ingredients and this even just the instinct that we can't let this song just finish verse chorus end because it's going to be nothing remarkable. We Mm -hmm. have to do something special. Take a chance. These people might hate it. There's probably kids out there that love the Smiths that hate the ending of this song. But luckily, mm-hmm. I come from the other side, which is I love Fugazi, and I love the ending of this song because it has that clever innovation, especially of like later Fugazi, like argument era Fugazi, where things are sort of bouncing off each other. And it's, I think it's fucking great. It's interesting you say that um, because like you're thinking of the Smiths there, just and you're like this charming man, you know their hits, but there's parts of the smiths off that first record and stuff like that that do just have like an instrumental outro and like mad weird things that happen that mm. morrissey isn't near for like two minutes um yeah but I mean, so this like, is like chopped mutes and stuff this is not you know, uh, you're right they're absolutely you're right i'm not i'm i'm sort of not giving them credit for some of the, the music they did but at the same time the, the chopped mutes approach chopped mutes on the guitar mm. bouncing off the drums is much more of a kind of fugazi-ish yeah, yeah, technique yeah. than it is one of, one of the kind of jangly kind of english bands of that era hands away which is like a super gothy very synthy trippy song Pacer, uh, it's it's one that took a while to get because so so many other tracks are much more immediate. But I have to say, it's it's one that fucking really works in the context of it. It's dead haunting, and it really broadens the palette of the record overall. That really big, grandiose, slightly pompous thing. It's a song that it's it's quite OTT, and I really dig that about it. Um, obstacle number two, again, even with the track namings, just dead fucking nonchalant. Like, it's a band that were like, we're not going to waste too much time coming up with these things. Obstacle number two starts in a really normal fashion. But it kind of diverts in some really odd ways during the song itself. There's a couple of like quite aggressive bits. At, um, I think it's about a minute thirty and about two minutes thirty. But it just gets a bit harder in a way that it, it didn't seem like the song was actually going to go. Um, 
the eight strike. Stella was a diver and she was always down. Again, playing on the very sort of uber cool, has that sort of weird accent he's spoken mm. introduction to the song. Has that tradition that they have now of like naming random women in the lyrics, mm-hmm. you know, like names that are sort of context-free women's names that give it this sort of sense of having some sort of personal poignancy. There's some really interesting touches in the song. It's not a, it's not one of my favourites in the record. I don't think it's a good song, and I know that from friends that like the band, it's one of their favourites. The, the some of the, the the drum roll stuff is excellent. Again, just underlining how innovative a drummer Sam Fogarino is, especially within the confines of pop music. Uh, I think there's a couple of wee bass breaks just before choruses that just do not sound like a guy who was raised on heavy metal. And it's to his credit that this guy grew up listening to these fucking ripping bands, uh, hair metal bands, mm. and yet has these massive disco instincts when he's he's doing these. I think on this track, like I think this, this the songs on this album live or die by the strength of their vocal hook and melody for me. Um, like overall, you've got great stuff going on underneath, but like it's either going to be a boring track or it's be a good tra- going to be a good track if it's got a good hook or if it's not got an annoying hook. And this is one of the ones that just kind of grated with me. About, yeah, yeah, I've got the same vocal melody, basically the verse and the chorus. Like, yeah, wasn't yeah. really so. That. Like, actually, would concede that the, the the phrase Stella on this when he's when he's singing the name is grating. I think it's one of the only points in this album where his voice does greater me and obviously because I love the album so much it's something that I learned to kind of absorb you know to, mm. take, to take the hit um, I think it's like a bit of eccentricity in their part musically speaking it's not my favourite moment but I certainly in terms of the context it's still a good song um, but I would concede that yeah he, he really really leans in to the vocal in this one arguably too much the, the song ends in a really unusual way though because it ends in this like really upbeat Sort of spanky outro that I, again just like the outro like didn't the, see coming. Like it's like much more optimistic than yeah. music, uh, and it goes straight into track nine, Roland, which is actually quite an old song for the band, uh, but a fucking belter. This is them at their most post-punk. Really fast, really direct for an indie band. The, the come on, come on whispers, like there's a couple of wee whispers through it that just add like a nice wee kind of element of cool. I think tonally, it's a fucking brilliant song. The tones of the guitar and the, the, the bass in this are tremendous. And there's there's an ending that kicks in from about three minutes onwards, this kind of big guitar refrain. Really, the guitar pushes up. One of the guitars really pushes to the front with a lot of reverb on it, and it's it's a big, big moment for them. See, this is a song I I did like this song, Same. but like this is one that I can't work out Interpol because I can't work out if I've listened to this album before, and I can't work out if I've seen them live before. I genuinely I don't know if I've seen them live before. <laughs> and but listening to Roland, I was like, oh, I think I kind of remember this. This is like a standout track 
to me, I kind of know this, but I'm like, but I don't think I've really listened to this album before, and I'm not sure if I've ever seen them before. Mm. So I don't know if it's just because they've they're taking things that I've heard before, or they're you know bands have then taken stuff from them. I mean, this is a standout track to me on the record, but it it just also reinforced the fact that I truly don't know where I stand with them because they're so I don't know they float in this grey cool cloud mm. that I've never been in before red and black yeah um, I mean I think it, it's a testament to the, the diversity of this record that this track's on it and NYC's on it and also the last two tracks the new and Leif Erikson are, are, are further further testimony to that end mm-hmm. uh, the new starts and ends like two completely different songs So quiet at the start with that little cute sweet bass line that comes in and the wee strums of the headstock. Um, it's a really close, a really personal sort of vocal, and there's there's a couple like a nice kind of little chorus lift to something that's quite quite beautiful. But then it suddenly just changes, and the track takes this really noisy minor atonal turn. start bending the strings in and out of tune as as the rest of the instruments are rumbling along. The bass in it is fucking almost funky at times whilst the guitars are doing this really dissonant thing and that track alone is like a microcosm of the completely polar opposites of this band, you know, the, the things they can do, not just in this, the space of this one album or their career but in, in one song. You know, it's an indulgent track but I think it's an indulgent track in a way that encourages other musicians who like it to take chances in their music, uh, because I think it works. Uh, and the final track, Leif Erikson, by the way, uh, the Norse explorer who was the first man to America, long, long, long for Christopher Columbus in the nice. tenth century. I like that. Also, song. also invented the Sony Ericsson. <laughs> <laughs> She says it helps with the light. It's a, it's got some fucking lovely lyrics in this song. Um, it's a big croony emotive tune. Uh, lyrics like it, it's like learning a, lo- a new language. There, there, there are moments that Interpol fans they they get the gush. They close the eyes and they sing along with them live. Uh, it's just a really lush song. Uh, it, it's and I think the outro is just one final moment of gorgeousness. I, I just think it's a, it's a tremendous ending to the album. It's a tremendous, tremendous cap on a very diverse, very uncontrived, uh, spontaneous uh, work that I think came from five years of these people just having no real plan, just getting in a room, picking up instruments they weren't even used to and seeing what came out. And then actually, as you said, with the, the approach to the production and stuff, replicating it authentically. 
and it just really struck a chord with people when it landed. I think what came after it was much more of an attempt of the band to try and be a bit more deliberate, and I think certainly for the first two albums after that, it really worked, but then went badly off track in recent years. But I just love how sincere this record is, and yet the fact that it was so accomplished. Because a lot of a lot of sincere attempts at albums are flawed because they're very naive or they don't land or they get something right but not the other thing right. For me and for the, the many people I know that fucking really treasure this album, I think it just represents like indie music especially at its most relevant and poignant. So it's going in then? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I, I think it's an absolute classic. I really do. Mark? Uh, I, f- I actually felt it was quite insincere um, I think they are unapproachable Completely unapproachable and Have every, you met them? Every capacity. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't want to meet them Because they just seem like dicks to me they seem Man, like, have you ever seen Carlos being interviewed? He's a fucking gem I'm sure he is um, uh, They seem really elitist to me And I don't like that Oh, they absolutely um, are That's exactly the um, aesthetic they're going I for I really hate that, that I like... I'm a Prince fan, so obviously, obviously, elitism is definitely a thing, right? Um, but can I hit the Prince alarm? You definitely should uh, hit that shit. <laughs> um, no, it's just the vocal. Vocals are a huge thing for me, as you know. Nah, not at all. Like, I mean, it's it's marmite. Some people fucking hate the the, the baritone thing, but uh, for me, a lot of people have tried it. Most of them fucked it. Interpol, especially on the first three records, absolutely killed it. I love it musically. It's, I understand what it's doing. It sounds very nice a lot of the time. It sounds like it sounds cracking. Pretty much the whole record sounds Chicks fucking cracking, man. <laughs> um, but it's just, yeah, it's, it just feels so empty to me. I mean, it's cold wavy. There's no getting away from that. It's like there's a, a long history of that kind of stuff in New York, and it definitely aesthetic as well borrows from that cold wave legacy. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yet the the analog approach to their playing and recording, I think more than compensates for that coldness I think that's the thing it's a nice balance it's the reason that the video for Obstacle Number 1 was in an empty airport departure lounge it's that emptiness as you say they do embrace that uh, I think it's it's very intrinsic to what they're trying to do. It pushes me it pushes me away too much, and then there's also the other layer of it, which is uh, which I can't remove. And obviously, I'm completely it's got complete blinders on. It's like it just sounds like so much dross that's come afterwards. I just can't I can't put myself in that moment. Like like obviously we've all we've all done that we've all done that with records we've done here. Like we just can't put ourselves in that mm-hmm. moment. So no, I don't think that's band even photography. Yeah, with. I'm with Mark in terms of it. it does. It sounds really nice and it sounds great. And I was listening into the car on the way here. And I'm just like, uh, you know, it's it's a nice kind of warm place to be when I'm concentrating on something else. But when I actually go to it, nothing captures me. It's like the good bits are when they like meander into this like post punk, post rock sort of thing. But then I'm like, I mean, we did fucking Cult of Luna last week, and like they then take that and go beyond with like literally beyond with it and just go f- so far and experiment and that's where i personally want my music to go or when they've got like the hooks which i really like there's some really good bits like i i, I really love nyc like that hook and then i mean i think evil was like a, a great tune on the ne- on the next album and stuff like that but i don't know overall this album kind of defines my relationship with indie rock or indie in that it's like I've gone along parallel with it for like 15 years where all my friends listen to it and love it and this is the sort of shit that they're into and because I've worked at student radio and then put on gigs in Glasgow I've ended up going to a lot of gigs like this and I've 
been to festivals and I've fucking I've seen television do Marquee Moon and I've been to see The Cure and I've seen Echo and the Bunny Men and all that. Oh yeah, they're one that we've not mentioned, and that's that. Yeah, Killing Moon, that kind of vibe is yeah, very much. And I hear lots Gang of these of Four bands. As well. We didn't mention Gang of Four and Gang of Four. Yeah, is a big part. I hear lots of these bands, and they're in playlists, and they're in the car, and I pick up bits of it, and some of it I really like. But then, no matter what, when I am on my own, I'm ne- I never fucking put it on. I'm going to be listening to Cult of Luna or Mashuga or Venetian Snares or Bjork or Aphex Twin because they go somewhere extra. They're not this like middle ground. I don't want to just deride indie rock as a thing, though. It's 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 something. Oh, I do. Can't. I mean, you. That's fine. That you're not going to. And I am in the vast minority here. I sit in my office of a music promoter, you know, an indie music promoter, and we put on gigs like this constantly, and we listen to music like this constantly in the office and all my friends listen to this and you know when we go to fucking clubs it's you know what they're asking for and blah 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 but none of it i've never ever got it i've never picked up on it unless there's something fucking dramatic or weird or personal about it and like that happens occasionally there's like an indie band that i really like and i go yeah i fucking understand it but this i know that it's good at what it is but it never, ever, ever captured me. And like so much indie music just fails to, I just fail to get on board with it. Um, Even though everybody else in the fucking world loves it. So, and then also my final point, (laughs) number nine, best album of the decade, e-music. Number seven, best album of the decade, beats per minute. Number three, uh, best album of the decade, under the radar. Number 20, best album of the decade, pitchfork. Number 12, best album of the decade, uh, music OMH. I, it's not an underrated album. Well, I mean, but as you know, we've obviously had the same thing with the Downward Spiral. I think what I'm suggesting is that given what a huge impact this album had on indie rock, I mean, you guys are talking about the sheer volume of stuff that imitated it, including over here, that entire movement of Kaiser Chiefs, Maximal Park, Future Heads, Franz Ferdinand, those guys all... Still going as well. Heavily, heavily, heavily. This is a... A two-door huge... cinema club headlined yeah. and sold out two academies last night. I know. The last so, so, I mean, you're talking about a band, it's undeniable how big an influence this band had. As I said, even guys like Chino Moreno and stuff going out and doing interviews specifically about this album you know this is a hugely influential album that didn't even break the top 100 i know it's been critically revered since then and i know that in some magazines at the time they acknowledged its its importance as well but what i'm saying is over the piece certainly commercially it's it's completely underrepresented given its enormous legacy and given how it not single-handedly, because it was part of a clutch of bands, but it definitely helped to revitalise an entire genre, which yeah. was basically dead in the water. Well, we'll see what the audience say. Go and vote for this. Um, I passionately, passionately, passionately do not care. <laughs> <laughs> and that is much like so much indie music. But uh, yeah, fair play. I under- I totally get it if you... C- I understand why you like it. I just don't give a fuck about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Nexus was easier. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the Nexus. Will we do that? Yeah, on you go, Chris. Who's first? This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us?
Why am I here? Hey, so who chose it? It was Corey Robinson, wasn't it? Corey Robinson's anybody to try and see it? Hey, Rabindranath Tagore. There you go. Is that the actual pronunci- pronunciation of the second name? I have no idea. No, nah, neither. Um, hey, Rab- Thakur, he was born, but I'm not sure. Uh, Thakur, I think, is like an Indian mystic. Yeah, he's, he has yeah. Indian, so yeah. Yeah. So we should explain <laughs> yeah, who he thanks. is. We should explain <laughs> I totally who he forgot is. For a second, yeah, yeah, sorry. And do you want to explain who he is? Yeah. Uh, Poet, playwright, polymath, basically yeah. artist, yeah, <laughs> from India, yeah. gentleman, yeah, outspoken, very outspoken, uh, opponent of nationalism and things like that. Yeah, he was. Uh, he seems actually seems like a really fucking interesting character. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Big pals with a lot of prominent people at the time, which oh, will yeah. maybe pop up in some of these next. Mm-hmm. Day. Um, <laughs> start with Interpol. Uh, the drummer of Interpol, or the the main drummer of Interpol, Sam Fogadino, says that one of the bands and maybe the band that switched them on to kind of alternative pop and indie rock and the potential for that was The Cars mm-hmm. ah. great band um, well do you know what some great songs never listened to an album yeah, but yeah, some great but, fucking no, tunes well he was saying that he grew up obsessed with the first two LPs and then the third LP whatever it's called I don't know <laughs> really sealed the deal for him but he said it was through The Cars that he got into stuff like Talking Heads and Devo and that's all stuff with relevance to mm-hmm. New York and the uh, CBGBs and all that kind of crew. Uh, so LA Easton was the lead guitarist for the Cars. By the way, considered amongst some sort of guitar aficionados as one of the most underrated guitarists, sort of pop rock guitarists of all time. Uh, played some really, really recognisable and quite excellent solos in some of their stuff. Just what I needed being a perfect example. Their tune. Um, so Ellie Easton actually performed uh, uh, the song Run Rudolph Run Fuck off, really? alongside Mr. William Shatner. Holy shit. <laughs> on, uh, on the Christmas album from 2018, Shatner Claus. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, which, by the way, that album also had Henry Rollins, Iggy Pop, Billy Gibbons, and all manner of other fucking. Of course it does. It's fucking William Shatner. It's, it's outstanding. Brilliant. Yeah, uh, William Shatner's Christmas album from 2018. Give it a listen. Uh, in 1962, a film was released uh, directed by Roger Corman called The Intruder. And in it, uh, William Shatner uh, played a guy called Adam Kramer. And basically, The Intruder was based on a 1959 book by Charles Beaumont. And that itself was a sort of fictionalised version of the events of 1956, uh, around about the time of the US Supreme Court case uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, which was the case that sort of determined school segregation and prohibited it and ordered, uh, it was Clinton High School in Tennessee to desegregate. And there's all those famous pictures of Mm -hmm. of black pupils being being bussed in and all the shit that those people had to deal with. Uh, Learned a lot about that at Memphis uh, National Civil Rights Museum. It's really, really interesting. Absolutely. Really, really interesting. Anyway, so those protests, the protests against the desegregation, so the protests against the black students coming back, uh, were actually spearheaded by a guy called John Casper. And John Casper was a, a member of the KKK. He was also a writer and a, 
an outspoken white supremacist speaker. Uh, he'd actually arrived in town in Clinton uh, from New Jersey, where he was from, to try and just basically stir up shit and block the the integration of these students. Uh, Casper, by the way, had a bookshop in Greenwich Village, and I tried to find a connection through New York. I could probably have got it, but I gave up because it was late. Um, but the bookshop was called Make It New. So just KKK guy with a bookshop in Greenwich Village. There you go. Apparently that happens. Um, he was also suspected of a school bombing in Nashville uh, and also multiple synagogue bombings at the time, although they couldn't actually tie him to the crimes. But, you know, when they suspect it's it... definitely in the MO, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, John Casper was an ardent devotee of Mr. Ezra Pound. Uh, See, Ezra Pound's actually a fucking great poet, but massive anti-Semite. Yeah, so some people say Ezra Pound's written some of the greatest poetry I would agree with of that. all time. I would agree with that. However... Uh, Total cut of a man. <laughs> yeah. Um, so John Casper sent Ezra Pound 400 letters between 1950 and 1963 uh, when Ezra Pound was in St. Elizabeth's Hospital, where he'd been sent on a treason charge to... Uh, and actually, because of the association with John Casper, it delayed Ezra Pound's release. John Casper was campaigning for Ezra <laughs> Pound's release, but because of Ezra Pound's close relationship to John Casper and Casper's well-known affiliation with the KKK and his history of like protesting against desegregation, uh, Pound spent longer in the hospital than he actually had to. Um, when Pound was released, by the way, he went straight back to Italy. I think it was just like, is it 19... 19- I can't even remember now, 58 maybe? Uh, The first thing he did when he got off the plane in Italy was shoot a fascist salute. There you go. Um, But Ezra Pound, uh, famous poet, lived in Italy, big fascist, huge fan of Mussolini, uh, in one interview called Hitler a Saint, um, broadcast over 100 times on Italian radio, speaking out in very strong terms against the USA, but also especially against Jews. Fucking hated Jews. Massive massive anti-Semite, as you say. Um, Ernest Hemingway, by the way, tried to get Ezra Pound freed early. Wrote on his behalf. There you go. But in 1912, in London, at a thing called the Tagore Evening, Ezra Pound met Tagore. Uh, he actually sat at his feet. Uh, he was apparently a huge fan, which is ironic given that Tagore's outspoken stance against mm-hmm. nationalism. Ezra Pound was a complex character, but he was also a complete dickhead. Yep. Yeah. Spent a lot of time in the madhouse. Yeah, in the Bunny, he totally did. <laughs> Well, you skirted me, but didn't quite. Good. Get I only went to graze you. Um, so, I mean, Interpol, we've talked about, took a huge uh, influence from New Order. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, um, in an interview with LA Weekly, they were chatting to Peter Hook of New Order. They were talking about, oh, you know, back at the turn of the century, there was a lo- load of bands that sounded like New Order. Uh, how do you feel about that? And he said, well, I don't mind it. Again, it has to be taken as a compliment. When Carlos left Interpol, they did an internet application form to be a bass player. I applied and didn't get picked. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, they, I applied. I as if Dave Paho applied on that. That's, that's weird. Oh, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Did he just I mean, get was, nod? Yeah, I'm not sure. So, New Order. New Order were one of the 70s and 80s bands that appeared on Ready Player One, Steven Spielberg. Or New Order is a 70s band. No, it's 70s and 80s. Oh, one, oh, so one of the bands from the 70s, 70s and 80s. 70s and 80s. Right, okay, sorry. Um, that appeared on Ready Player One, David. which is like this big retro gaming thing. Am I just doing the exact same as you? We better not be. I fucking hate you guys. <laughs> By the way, seriously, do you guys like share a flat? <laughs> share a bed? Continue. This, this, this uh, keeps happening. Also appearing on uh, that uh, <laughs> soundtrack <laughs> include uh, Prince, Tears for Fears, Oh. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, blah blah David, blah. David Prince is in it. You should have known Mark was going to go this way. I want to fuck. Um, but also, I've never seen this film, but apparently, 
appearing in that film there's lots of like retro gaming shit mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. i don't know and one of the retro gaming people that are things that appears in ready player one is sonic the hedgehog okay Am I going down a different I was route more like, most worried about the Steven Spielberg thing. But All right, no, you, no, no. No, I'm going down the Sonic the Hedgehog absolutely route. Absolutely fine. Because <laughs> uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, obviously classic uh, Sega Mega Drive Genesis game. And a Genesis fucking game. horrendous looking movie. <laughs> well, yeah, so oh, the new movie is so, coming out next yeah. year. They've actually taken it back in to redesign Sonic wow, the Hedgehog. It's so minging. But most they're not almost as bad as cats. <laughs> but they are, oh, no. they are not redesigning... Uh, Dr. Robotnik who is going to be played by Jim, Jim Carrey, Carrey. Mm. Interesting uh, Now Jim Carrey Seems more like a Nick Nolte Yeah Yeah <laughs> no but I mean he was in the trailer and he's just uh, interesting but uh, Jim Carrey uh, recently got in a little Twitter spat when he um, talked about fascism and said that fascism yes. leads to people hanging on lampposts Yeah uh, and uh, it led to one reply from a certain Alessandra Mussolini, the granddaughter of Benito Mussolini, who just replied with, you are a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just fantastic. Uh, so Jim Carrey versus Mun- Mussolini was a thing that we never thought would happen. Yeah. Um, but Mussolini uh, met... That should be an unlockable level in Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, I know. <laughs> uh, Mussolini met Tagore in 1924 in London, uh, and Tagore said some kind of nice things about him as well, actually, funnily enough. Mm. But wow. At the time. That was before he got involved with the, the whole war. <laughs> <laughs> the whole fascism. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so... Here's my nexus. Um, the song Obstacle Number no. 1 was the second single from uh, Turn On The Bright Lights. The video was directed by uh, Floria Sigismundi, um, and she was recently brought on board to direct the Steven Spielberg-produced film The Turning. I believe it's her, direct, it's her directorial feature film debut. The Turning is based on a novel, a novella by, it's actually a novella, by Henry James called Turn Of The Screw. And Henry James was actually nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1911, 1912 and 1916. And uh, Tagore was the first non-European writer to win the prize in 1913. Oh, that was short and sweet. Right, okay, yeah, pretty go. good, functional. All right. <sighs> well, there we are. That was right. I'll I'll emotionally recover from that. Um, Mark, <laughs> uh, it's your choice next week. Who would you like us to uh, shout? At? Sorry, talk about. <laughs> so next week we're going to do Figure Eight by Elliot Smith. Um, Elliot Smith. Yeah. He's pulled the trigger. Yeah, I think we're going to do it at some point and. We had a brief discussion about it last mm-hmm. like a couple of weeks ago. We've and talked about him a few times. Yeah, but and we we actually had a weird discussion about it where it seems as though we've kind of both come to the same opinion. Yeah, yeah. And there's, um, there's gonna I be, mean, um, I've got two weeks in a row of indie music that all my friends like, and I've never given a fuck about it. So that's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it up. So this oh, will be well. this will be interesting. I mean, it's, it's we'll talk about why Elliot probably is on not unsung, but it'll be interesting to talk about. His legacy and how we now react to him as fully grown adult males. Mm. So it should be, should be, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, we should uh, draw our, um, yeah. Mark, draw our nexus. Pick a name. How are we going to get from Elliot Smith to. To. Da, 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 da. Mowgli from the Jungle Book. Mowgli from the Jungle Book. Who yeah. suggested that? Me. Oh, <laughs> well done, Mark. Fucking hell. That's that, fine. That will actually probably not be that hard. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Let's wait and see. Yeah. We'll see. We can uh, we can meander, go down some interesting roads. Mm-hmm. I need to pee. Can we wrap this up? Do, 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 do. <laughs> it is time for me to go and empty my bladder. Okay, thanks. <laughs>
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.